With just a few weeks left until February, I want to let you all know once again that the Intuitive Development course is still taking students. This is a six-week program where you will learn all about grounding and protecting your energy, connecting as a psychic and as a medium, what it means to be an empath, and how you can handle that in a chaotic world. All classes are recorded, so if you can't make it to the live class, the replay will be dropped in your email within 48 hours of class. And you may think that this is unaffordable, but in fact, the pricing is on a sliding scale basis and you pay what you can afford. I believe that we should all have access to learn to connect with our intuition, and we shouldn't compromise on the quality of lessons because of cost. You'll be getting the same content at each price. I usually charge $550 to work with me as an intuitive development student, but have started the sliding scale at $100 for those who truly want to participate but otherwise wouldn't be able to. I can't wait to see some of my favorite true crime fans in class learning how to connect and testing your intuition with crime podcasts just like I do. The link to sign up is in the show notes, and if you have any questions, please send me an email or connect with me on Instagram. The disclaimers, of course, this podcast will always deal with content that may not be suitable for all listeners. Everything that I share as my own intuitive guidance will be noted as such, and this show is for entertainment purposes only. Everyone is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. And in case I forgot to say it, I'm Catherine Galvin, psychic medium, (laughs) true crime lover, podcast host, and this is Murder and Mediumship. I'm just so excited to get into this episode. And with that being said, Spotify now offers the option to rate the podcast you listen to. Go hit those stars. Hit them, hit them, hit them. And as for iTunes, keep them coming. And I just wanted to shout out Rachel Dion for the review left on iTunes. Thank you so, so much. And what you didn't know when you left that review was that we were already adding co-hosts to the rotation. So I'm so happy that you already got what you asked for. Welcome back, Chelsea. Yay. Thanks for having me back. It feels like it's been so long. Yeah. (laughs) So long. Okay. We're done. We need to get into part two because we are so here for it. And there's a chance that you're listening to this a week later, or there's a chance that I decided to be a really nice human and release it almost immediately after episode one, part one of the Black Dahlia was released. But, you know, we're not going to know until I hit the button. Even I don't know what's going to happen. So Elizabeth Short, just a quick recap. And Chelsea, again, feel free to interrupt and fill in any gaps because you know how excited I get and how fast I start talking when it gets to the the nitty gritty details. Elizabeth Short, wannabe aspiring actress, was found dead, naked and cut into two at the waist on January 15th, 1947. Hundreds of people gave tips and even claimed to be the killer of the Black Dahlia, but none were ever arrested or charged with her murder. When I first connected to this case, before really diving into researching it, I did see definitely two and possibly a third person connected to her killing. I feel that two men were absolutely physically involved and a third at least had knowledge of it, but perhaps had nothing to do with it, the actual um, death or moving of the body. However, I also felt that she met her killer in a bar-like setting. Not to say necessarily that he was a patron, just that she would have met him in a setting like that, which almost makes more sense to me as well now. Anyway, I was seeing a bar stool, thought maybe at the time when I first saw it, it could be like a drugstore bar stool, you know, burger joints, milkshakes, that kind of thing. But it definitely felt more um, nighttime entertainment. And I had an image of her, um, 
I had an image of her being only in her underwear and bra and being tied up with her hands behind her back. I do believe that the cuts to her face were done by one person and that only one of them had anything to do with any post-mortem mutilation of her body. I believe that the third person caught wind of how far this, quote, punishment or lesson had gone and was not going to participate. He removed himself from the situation. I believe that this person is who she was waiting for at the hotel that day when Red Manley left her there, and that she wasn't interested in him actually knowing who she was going to be with. And I feel that the person meeting her there was supposed to be giving her money, or at least connected to the person who was supposed to be giving her money, and that he frequently did this type of thing for her, but that he was sick of being teased. And while she thought she was going to be able to get bus fare out of LA and some money for food or a place to stay, or God only knows what her actual plan was, I do believe he had zero intention of her going anywhere other than where he wanted her to go. I feel that he cut her face to, quote, ruin her so that she wouldn't be beautiful for Hollywood anymore. And I think he was a very jealous man who surrounded himself with someone who was also very sick but that the rest of society wouldn't have ever known this side of him. They would also see him as an intelligent and hardworking person who could never be involved with something so vile. However, I also believe he wasn't present for her actual murder. I believe he was responsible for some abrasions and scratches, that he had hurt her before, and that hurting her in this way was maybe nothing new, but the cutting of her face was to signify that he was done, and that he wouldn't stand for her denying him anymore. He left the rest of his associate and left. I believe that then the associate took over and tortured and killed her. I do believe that he let the blood out of her body and that he was the one who was responsible for cutting her as well. He had prior knowledge of doing this either with other large animals or some sort of medical background, but regardless, he had a steady hand nonetheless. And again, this is all my intuitive insight. None of this is fact. And this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Chelsea, do you have anything to add or ask about that? Well, I was going to say about like the bar stool and her being half naked. I read that she waitressed at the Florentine Gardens nightclub. Um, and I think they had like a burlesque show. So I'm oh. wondering maybe she was a little burlesque gal. When I ask, what I'm hearing is that she wouldn't have done so in the beginning, but that she was getting desperate. She had written to, I think, one of her sisters saying that she was like auditioning or something for like the burlesque review. Oh, no. She probably thought that was like her only ticket to like getting anywhere, right? Right. Poor honey. Well, I don't know. She was so full of crap, though, too, because she also wrote her mom and said that she was like meeting with a director for a screen test. See? I didn't read that. I love that. <laughs> I feel like she just made up a lot of stories. <laughs> like it was exactly. hard to take her seriously. She was full of shit because she wanted everyone to believe that she was doing well and that she wasn't a failure. It makes so much sense. I almost feel like too with her sisters that she was always kind of like the one who was a problem. And it maybe it's possible that like with her being sick and having to be cared for all the time, maybe she really felt like she had to do something big because of how sick she always was. I don't know. Let's get into the first infamous suspect, Dr. George Hodel. 
a lot of people are convinced that he killed her. And uh, he's actually the topic of a podcast called Root of Evil, the story of the true story of the Hodel family and the Black Dahlia. This podcast covers also um, the Delphi murders, which was an earlier episode of Murder and Mediumship as well. And I really, really recommend this podcast to anyone who loves true crime. But in this one in particular, in this season about the Hodel family, it's it's an eight-part series. So it's there's not too much. I believe they're all around an hour long, give or take. But in this podcast, his great-granddaughters, George Hodel's great-granddaughters, Rasha Piscaro and Yvette Gentile go deeply into who George Hodel is and what evil he had beset upon their entire family. If you love this podcast, you will love that one. Anyway, in October of 1949, Dr. Hodel was accused of molesting his 14-year-old daughter Tamar. While he was acquitted of the charges in December of the same year, he fell onto police radar because of this case, because of this trial. Dr. Hodel specialized in public health and sexually transmitted diseases, and because of his accusation of sexual deviance, police wanted to further explore him as a suspect. It's my understanding that pretty much anyone accused of any sort of sex crime was being looked at by the police, so it didn't really matter so much who he was or that he was convicted of molesting a minor. It was that he was on their radar because he was someone who one was a doctor and had surgical knowledge and two was um, a a sexual abuser. So he was placed much like a lot of other suspects under police surveillance. And it was believed that he knew that his phone was tapped though, and that there were microphones in his home because it seemed like he was taunting police stating things like they'll never be able to prove I did that murder According to police, after roughly three weeks, they felt his innocence had been proven and his surveillance ended and he was not any longer considered a person of interest in the case. According to someone named Lillian Denorick, who had lived in the, in oh my goodness, who had lived with the Hodels for some time, Dr. Hodell did spend time at the Biltmore and even went so far as to identify as Elizabeth as a friend of his. However, others who knew both Elizabeth and the doctor, like Rudolph Walters, alleged that the doctor had never known the victim at all and did not believe that they had ever even met, though they were known to frequent the same clubs and even some of the same people. However, according to Dr. George Hodel's son, Steve Hodel, former LAPD homicide detective Steve Hodel, his father is the killer of the Black Dahlia. When Dr. Hodel died in 1999, Steve was given a book of his dad's favorite photos by Dr. Hodel's widow. In the book, Steve believed that he had found two photographs of Elizabeth Short, and this is what led him to investigating his own father for the murder. I want to say that as soon as I looked at those pictures when I watched him in his documentary talking about, or I think it was like a 48 hours interview or something, it'll be linked in the show notes, but I can't recall where it was at this point. Um, He shows those photographs of her in the book. And I remember looking at her, even almost just glancing up and I went, that's not her. Just instinctively, that's not her. I really don't believe that it is her. And he believed also, this is someone that Chelsea had brought up before we started recording that Jean French, who was also brutally murdered and left in a field, I believe 27 days after the Black Dahlia was was found dead. And she had um, writing in lipstick on her body, which supposedly was his father's handwriting and had also written BD on there as in like Black Dahlia. Do you want to speak to what was written on her? 
am I allowed to say it? (laughs) It said, what was it? (laughs) F-U-B-D. Oh, okay. That's what it was. Yeah. It's so funny. The like newspapers from the time won't say F-U, but they will. Oh, well, you can see the pictures online too. If you Google the red lipstick killer, um, because the police department wanted to say that it said PD, but it very obviously says BD. But I would just like to say that um, I love that Mr. Steve can like speculate that it's his father's handwriting. Like it's in lipstick on a human body. It's not like you're writing on a piece of paper. <laughs> like how Right. That? And that's the uh, handwriting analyst who looks at it says like, she makes allowances for that. She's like, okay, so you, I mean, when you're looking at writing on a piece of paper versus writing on a body, I'm sure there's like some significant shift, but there's also like, look at the way that this O is slanted. That's very unique. I'm like, okay, but my dude, I write differently on like a chalkboard versus a piece of paper. I can only imagine, and I know that you're going to see similarities and things that are going to say, hey, yeah, this is the same thing. Catherine wrote this and that. But when it comes to writing on a body with lipstick, I don't know. Anyway, I digress. He believed that Jean French was also a victim of his father, so that he had killed both her and the Black Dahlia. And the there was also... Um, a woman not far from the hotel home, Gladys Kern, a real estate agent who was murdered in her home. I believe she was stabbed. And this, the sketch of the man seen fleeing the scene of the murder of Gladys Kern looked much like his father. And when you do look at the sketch and you look at a photo of George Hotel, absolutely, they do look very similar. But is it him? I don't know. And even if he did kill her, does that mean he killed the Black Dahlia? Because simply stabbing someone versus cutting them in two and carving out large pieces of their body, that doesn't really necessarily put the two together, right? Anyway, the letters that were sent to the LA Examiner also, according to Steve Hodel, matched his writing and were mailed two blocks from George Hodel's medical office. Again, I don't really feel like that's that big of a deal. The, the two blocks feel like association there. Dr. Hodel hosted lavish parties in his home with many famous artists and authors such as John, John Houston, surrealist artist Man Ray, painter Fred Sexton, and author Henry Miller. These parties were always highly sexual in nature, orgies going on well into the night, and his wife, who was bisexual, would get girls to come over, and according to her, there were always lines at Dr. Hodel's door of women waiting to be with him. She would even participate in some of the orgies, but Steve Hodel would later say that he believed his mom was also afraid of George. His daughter Tamar was groomed at these parties, even claiming to have lost her virginity to Fred Sexton and other women after ritualistic activities. He was always entertaining women and even making doctor's house calls with his children in the car while he had sexual relations with the women inside of their homes. In 1945, Hodel's secretary and sometimes lover was found dead of an apparent drug overdose. In 1947, Elizabeth Short was murdered, and in 1949, his daughter accused him of rape and incest, of which he was acquitted, despite her later giving birth to a baby her father had impregnated her with. All of this is horrific, but does it make him a murderer? That I don't know. If I were to tell you just looking at him and feeling into his energy, which I really feel uninclined to do whatsoever because his eyes are haunting and sickening and make my stomach turn, 
Um, is he a murderer? More than likely, yes. I think he has killed other people. Were his psychosexual and sadistic rituals also homicidal? Yeah, probably. Um, I don't mean to say it so nonchalantly, but I, I just, I'm not sure. No one could prove anything about his being seen with the Black Dahlia or not. And if she was really around as many men and around as many women as it was rumored that they both were, then who's to say in these dark clubs or hotel bars or these packed sexual parties that identity couldn't be mistaken, especially when everyone is like on drugs and drinking and I mean, it's not like it's a nice, clean environment, right? So we all know that eyewitness testimony on top of it can be far from accurate when viewing things from hindsight, especially. It would be easy to fit someone into a storyline we would like them to fit into. That being said, do I think George Hodel is a psychotic creep? Absolutely, Yes, I do. 100%. Yes. Um, he is a sick, sick man. Uh, Very sick man. A murderer, more than likely multiple murders of low-life women who were easily disposed of without being noticed. The killer of the Black Dahlia, though, I don't think that was him. I believe that the photos of his that were similar to Elizabeth Short are exactly that, strikingly similar, but not her. And the first time I saw the photos in the book, I said, that's not her. When a facial recognition specialist later agreed, that really was kind of the nail in the coffin for me. George Hodel did not kill Elizabeth Short. Do you agree? I totally agree. Um, I am curious to know, do you think that he was the Black Dahlia Avenger that kept writing in? No. No. My intuition strikes me as someone that would like attention, like that would like play games with people's feelings, like he'd like to screw with the law enforcement. I would agree with that, but I also feel like he was up to so many illegal activities that he wouldn't necessarily want to draw that attention to him. That's true. Do you know what I'm saying? Especially after just being acquitted of molesting your daughter who later had your baby. (laughs) I don't know. You see the thing where like there's a record of him paying um, like the district attorney, like 15 grand to acquit him. Shocking. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So shocking. That's to say that. LAPD, listen, if you guys haven't listened to the Tupac case, go on back to that because there's nothing that isn't corrupt about the LA police department. There's just not. (laughs) There's so much corruption in that dang city. It's ridiculous. I say dang. We're talking about like mutilated corpses and I'm like, I think dang is appropriate instead of anything else. (laughs) For sure. Okay. So I don't think he taunted, but I want to say, too, that was strictly an intuitive answer. Had I answered based off of the way that I would feel myself about it, I would say yes. But my intuition says no. He wasn't the one, um, like, avenging anything. So if it wasn't George Hodel, then who do we think killed Elizabeth Short? If you recall from the last episode, cabin three of the Astro Motel was found absolutely covered in blood spatter and fecal matter. The same exact day that Elizabeth Short was found. Because of previous trouble with law enforcement, the owner cleaned up the mess and never reported it to authorities. According to Chelsea, his wife tattled on him because she was sick of his ass. What I didn't share last week was that the bellhop from the Biltmore Hotel Leslie Dillon also stayed at the Astro Motel from time to time and happened to have been staying there around the time that Elizabeth was murdered. 
Many witnesses even came forward to say that someone who looked much like Elizabeth Short, again, I realize what I just said about eyewitnesses, but a lot of people also said that we're going to use it here because it works. No, I'm kidding. But a lot of people did also say that um, they saw someone who fit the description of Elizabeth Short with someone who fit the description of Leslie Dillon and Mark Hansen. It was rumored that Leslie Dillon was an associate of Mark Hansen's. Danish businessman with alleged ties to the mob. Not only was Dylan an associate of Hansen's, but he would later give the name of a third person to LAPD, Jeff Connors. So how did he come under suspicion of the Los Angeles Police Department? You might think he couldn't have possibly turned them on to him on his own, could they? Because who would actually write to law enforcement to implicate themselves in a crime? Well, Leslie frickin' Dillon would, that's who. So Dillon began correspondence with chief psychiatrist of LAPD, Dr. J. Paul DeRiver, in October of 1948. This is over a year after the murder of Elizabeth Short, okay? Over a year, and now he's writing in, because he heard, he read about the case in a true detective magazine, and he thought he would just let them know that he knew some stuff while he was living in Florida because he had moved far, far away from LA. Why? I don't know. Maybe to get away from the scene of a murder and from your mob boss, your gang affiliated mob boss, just saying. Um, if, if we were just making assumptions here, that's what I would say, but we're not. So we're going to continue. His method of correspondence was letter writing, and I believe he was the one who sent the letters to the examiner to begin with. At first, Dylan used the pseudonym Jack Sand and went on to say that it was possible that his acquaintance, Jeff Connors, was possibly, quite possibly responsible for the death of Elizabeth Short. He told Dr. DeRiver that Elizabeth had possibly been made aware of, quote, an affair not considered proper by the average person. However, the psychiatrist didn't think that Connors even existed. DeRiver believed that Connors was merely a figment of a delusional man's imagination. This man is writing to you telling you that he knows that he personally knows a suspect. And I understand that they got a lot of tips that were false and misleading and a waste of time. But I also understand that they took him so seriously that they continued correspondence. So why were they continuing correspondence with him? They obviously thought he had something to do with it, right? So Dylan knew many details about the murder that LAPD had kept close that no media or anyone outside of the case knew about. And he even alleged that the Black Dahlia had been murdered inside of a motel. A motel that was cleaned and soaked sheets and burned and all of those things. Hoffman. He even... Excuse me. My intuition would lead me to believe that Hanson or Connors picked her up at the Biltmore. But now that you're saying what you had said about, tell me his name again. Maurice Clement. And he was a henchman of Hanson? Or, um, well, not Hanson, but Hanson is linked to um, Bugsy. What was Bugsy's last name? Bugsy Seagal or whatever, who I guess was pretty big in like the mob. Um, but I think that this like Maurice Clement kind of did everyone's like dirty work. Mm. 
Okay, this makes sense. So someone else, and again, this is where earlier I shared my intuitive hit was like these two people for sure. And I very much feel that Leslie Dillon and Mark Hansen were two of these people who were involved. And that third person is the one that feels like I can't quite put my finger on it. So that's interesting there as well. Um, so they, whoever this person was, picked her up at the Biltmore and took her to the Astro Motel. I believe that Dylan was a sick, sick individual and that he came into possession of her birth certificate, her social security card, and her photos and her address book because he took them from her that night. He was obsessed with true detective work and even read about the Black Dahlia in that true detective magazine. I think that reading that article in the magazine was what reignited the feeling of everything that happened and he reinserted himself into the case. DeRiver eventually convinced Dylan to come back to L.A. under the guise of helping him with the investigation. What's interesting to me as well is that he moves to Florida right after all of this happens, right? Like he's gone and he kind of feels to me like he'd be more of the live wire. He'd be the one that they wouldn't necessarily want to mess anything up. But he also, he just like... There's just something off about him. And when you look at him, you feel the evil, but you can't necessarily tell exactly what it is. Um, this is like the kind of person who like hurts puppies kind of feeling he gives me, you know. So DeRiver and a few other LAPD officers actually intercepted Dylan on his way to L.A. and forced him into a hotel just outside of the city where they questioned him for several days. They didn't let him call an attorney. They didn't let him communicate with anyone else or leave. And he was essentially held hostage by the LAPD. Why would they do this? Because Hansen was a very connected business person, and he was about to be implicated in the crime, of which he had already been a person of interest for. However, Dylan managed to toss a postcard out of a window of the hotel room to the street below, explaining that he was being held hostage and to get the police. I think that they were trying to pin this on Dylan, but for whatever reason, it just, they weren't getting all of the information that they needed or something wasn't completely adding up. I think they were trying to get a confession from him and they weren't necessarily getting that. Being that they thought he was crazy to begin with, I kind of wonder if this was going to be their scapegoat. That makes sense. I'm just, I'm wondering like what his, like you said, like he's, you know, somebody who probably hurt like puppies and kittens and stuff. But he was a mortician's assistant before as well. So I just wonder, like, he probably also, like, mutilated, like, deceased bodies before. Oh. So maybe if he didn't actually do, like, the actual killing and he just did the rest of the things to the body, that would be pretty typical for him. Right. And here's the thing, too, about being a mortician's assistant. He was also taught how to drain the body of blood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably knew how to cut a body in half, too, and avoid having to saw through bones. Probably. So now that they know that Connors is a real person and that he was in L.A. around the time of the murder, they've now held a suspect hostage, (laughs) 
How the hell are they going to get this case to court without implicating themselves in a multitude of of crimes as well? Dylan ended up filing a $100,000 lawsuit against the city of L.A., which caused a grand jury investigation into the handling of the Black Dahlia case in 1949, as well as other unsolved murders. Now, the way that I see it, Dylan I feel like he knew too much, but he also didn't know like the danger of what he was saying and what he was doing by writing to that um to that psychiatrist. Like his reaching out and writing to them, he felt like he was the detective, right? Like that's his dream to be able to do that. And when he puts himself there, I think he was almost like on a high. Like in the way that his his mental health clearly wasn't all there and he was having trouble discerning between the reality of the situation was his involvement with it and where he was pushing law enforcement to look like I don't think he realized that they thought they were looking that they were looking at him they really thought he really thought that they were seeking his help in the situation do you know what I'm saying right just like stroking his ego like right exactly so Given what we know about L.A. and the history of the police force to be corrupt and involved in the mob, it is no surprise at all that there were multiple murders that weren't handled the way that they should have been. Whether the police didn't feel the lives of these women were worth looking into, the causes of their death, or they were covering for someone with ties to the mob, which is also known to have ties to LAPD, we'll never know. Connor's alibi was that his ex-wife, was his ex-wife, and she assured police that he was at work at the time of Elizabeth Short's murder. Though I might add that Connors and his wife parted ways not long after the murder, which I again find suspicious. Isn't hiding a murder, especially of that caliber, probably a little stressful on a marriage? Yeah. Probably a little bit. The day that Elizabeth was left at the Biltmore by Red Manley, she was waiting for whoever it was that drove her to her death. She was absolutely held for days before being killed, and I would venture to say that Dylan was the one who got carried away after Hanson left. I very much believe that Hanson is the one who cut her lips and that Dylan mutilated her post-mortem. I don't believe that she would have ever given him the time of day. And I think that while he knew that, it was really more or less for him just about the mutilation. And while I know that they spoke of how it felt so deeply personal, I think that what happened to her face was very deeply personal. I know that in other um, podcasts and sources that I have read and listened to, uh, Jean, not Jean, um, Dorothy French and her mom talk about how the the person who would be seen like following her, like checking in on her, whoever, um, she was always covered in scratches on her arms. So I, I do kind of wonder if this physical force had already been used on her by him as intimidation and as like you are here, you like not necessarily work for me, but that she owes him in one way or another. And I, I do believe that um he had been abusive with her before and that it ultimately got to this point where he was done letting her call the shots and have any kind of freedom over her own life and her body anymore. He wanted her, you know? So I do think that he probably took advantage of her. Then he cut her face and then he left her with Dylan, who I believe carried out the rest of it. I don't think that the third person had anything to do with it outside of driving her there. And I do know 
if you do your own research, you'll see that they were able to verify that um, Dylan was in San Francisco at the time of her death, except that I really feel like this is a little bit of fudgery on part of the LAPD after they got caught doing what they did with him. Yes, I would agree. So um, go ahead. I was going to say that that makes sense, like about like the cuts and scratches and stuff, because um, one article that I read said that Red Manly had reported on like one of their dates or something. She had like scratches all over her arms and he thought they looked self-inflicted, but she insisted that she had been assaulted and like barely got away with her life. That's interesting. I almost, I would be willing to say that she probably did inflict self-harm on herself. That makes sense. I think that she probably did. I mean, she was completely lost, right? She had to be depressed. Oh, 100%. She had nothing. Her mental health couldn't have been that great. She was delusional. She believed her own lies. It's ultimately, it's very, obviously very sad what happened to her. And it's very sad that her fame, she's only known in death, considering she wanted to make it as a big star. But also, she was completely um, taken advantage of. And it's sad. And her case wasn't taken seriously because of who she was in society and who she wasn't in society. And I think that's a large reason why her crime scene was contaminated, why they treated her kind of like they maybe would have treated a prostitute. And that was it. And, you know, I want to say, too, that feeling into the case at first, feeling into her, you can hear my dog snore in the background, um, feeling into her, I felt like there was a level of prostitution and you and I had talked about this too. I got Mm -hmm. that she was a prostitute, but not in like the traditional sense of sex for money. It felt like there were people who she would sleep with or be with who would give her what she needed in the way of food and shelter for simply being there. And while she maybe wasn't sexually putting out, she was still giving them her presence and in exchange for what she needed. I feel like in a sense, she was prostituting herself. It just wasn't in that typical way, I guess. Does that make sense? There, were, there was no cash exchange. Yeah, no money on the bedside stand kind of thing. Um, so ultimately, yeah, I think that Mark Hansen is responsible for her death. I think that he got away with a lot. And I also know that he was eliminated as a, excuse me, eliminated as a suspect early on. But I really feel like that was another, you know, the right person and you're out of there, you know? Um, Yeah, he was friends with the lead investigator, Sergeant Finnis Brown. Yeah, I can't imagine. And that's um, that's how Leslie got off as well. See, I do. I think that they were, I think they were in on it. And I love that people, they're one of the, um, summaries about Hanson that I had read talked about how he was never known to be a violent man. And I had to laugh out loud at that because how many victims of domestic violence come out with their story of like horrendous abuse and people's response is often something along the lines of, I had no idea he was like that. Whatever knows it's ridiculous. So in conclusion, Mark Hanson, that's who we like for it. Mark Hanson and Leslie Dillon Mm -hmm. and that Leslie Dillon I wouldn't be surprised if there were other things that happened in that area in connection with him. But as far as any other murders, we ain't talking about those right now. We're talking about the Black Dahlia. And 
Hopefully you guys will be back next week to hear another infamous case of Lizzie Borden. So stay tuned and then getting back to it. We will be back to the lesser known cases as well soon. We wanted to jazz it up in the new year and throw in a little bit of um, whodunit at you guys for all of the more famous cases that we have questions about. And thank you, Chelsea, so much for being on the show with me and being my first guest host. I'm so honored that you said yes and that you were so excited to do this. And I was a little nervous that you were going to beat me with all of your facts that you always have because you're like an encyclopedia of crime over there. I love it. Well, thank you for having me. And you you know me, I always bring the notes the show. I do my research. So thrilling. It's wonderful. And Chelsea will definitely be back with me, whether she knows it or not, because she is going to be that go-to for the co-host. So thanks again, Chelsea. And thank you all for listening. Hopefully you enjoyed what we believe happened to the Black Dahlia. And we'll catch you next time on Murder and Mediumship. Go leave some stars.